My mom was like, you know, you have to always ask yourself what you're doing. Is it of any substance? Because she was like, if you have no substance, then it's meaningless. When I started my blog, there was no fear at all. There was no like, oh my gosh, are people going to... Maybe there was a little bit of that, like, are people going to like this? But it wasn't fear, you mm -hmm. know? I was never like, oh my God, this is ever going to become a thing. Is this, this and that? I just knew that it was going to succeed in some weird part of me. I just knew like, this is my ticket out of Vancouver. Even in all those bright moments in my life, like whether I be on a cover of a magazine or I land in like a huge global campaign or like all of these big monumental moments in your life, you know, where you're like, oh, I've made it. That question or like, again, like my mom is just like, well, what substance are you bringing? Mm -hmm. What are you really bringing to the table? We're sitting down at the podcasting studio today and this is kind of fun because we are switching things up because we are dedicating this to Asian excellence this season one. I decided myself that <laughs> I'm an excellent Asian, so I should also be on season one. But seriously, I got a lot of feedback from everybody and everyone wants to kind of hear my story as well. And I think sharing my experiences and my history and whatnot will give an even more informed backdrop to why this podcast is so important to me. So today, obviously, because I couldn't interview myself, <laughs> that actually would be kind of funny. I have enlisted my right-hand women, my assistant. Hello. Amy, who also helps me on the podcast and probably knows me best because I feel like, I mean, you know my schedule, you know yes. everything that I do. You basically... Do. I'm always watching. You're the maestro of my life. <laughs> so let's get started. Yes. Hi, guys. I am so nervous. I was shaking for like <laughs> 10 minutes and I also didn't eat anything this morning because I was like scared I was going to have diarrhea or something if I ate. So that's off to a great start. I love how like all the episodes before was like Jen Rubio, like super amazing businesswoman and then Michelle Lee, like editor-in-chief and here I am talking about diarrhea within the first three it's minutes. So, it's, it's okay. So. <laughs> You're bringing the comedic relief to <laughs> Vanessa Wants to Know season one. Oh, yeah, exactly. So subscribe if you've ever had diarrhea and yes. um, rate us five out of five if you <laughs> never want me to come back on this podcast ever again. Our ratings are going to go through the roof oh. after this episode. <laughs> All right. So let's get started. Right before when we were coming over here on the subway, I asked Vanessa if anything was off limits. And she was straight up like, no. So we're going to get into all of the tea. I'm exposing Vanessa, but also not really because she's such an open book. And let's just start in the very beginning, like we always do, just fresh out the womb. Tell okay. us about your life, your beginnings. Okay, so I'm Canadian. I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia. My upbringing was very kind of idyllic. For those of you who know Vancouver or have been there, you know, it's like, it's really beautiful. It's really calm. There's ocean, sea, mountains. I did all those, you know, super Canadian things growing up. But I knew very early on what I wanted to do. I always was fascinated by fashion. And I mean, my mom tells me one of like, the anecdotes she loves to share with everybody is that I start dressing myself when I was like two, like the moment I could kind of formulate my own thoughts and walk and whatnot. I would be grabbing my own clothes out of my own closet and like, you know, looking at myself in the mirror and like putting outfits together. So I remember that my parents were very like bohemian Chinese. I right. think a lot of people have this idea that like, oh my gosh, you know, you have two Chinese parents. Like, did you, did they put you into like math class. They make you like do all this like crazy stuff to like prime you for becoming a doctor or a dentist or whatever. And I have to say for me, no. So my parents really gave me the freedom to do whatever I wanted. I mean, also I had a mom who worked all the time and more or less an absentee father. So I was really allowed to do whatever I wanted. Mm -hmm. So very early on, instead of, you know, putting my sister and I in chess club after school, my mom kind of had this early insight 
with me and my sister, she put us kind of in this like performing arts, arties kind of school. So I like after school, I would dance, I would paint, I would make movies, I would like make jewelry. I think this, you know, this early freedom of being able to do whatever I wanted to do and being exposed to so many different kind of forms of creativity. My mom's a florist, so I was surrounded by flowers. I was surrounded by like, you know, all the young art students that worked for her. That really, I think, influenced me. Right. And you said you're not exactly first gen, but you're not completely like second gen either because your family kind of like part of them came to Canada earlier, but then your mom came like from Hong Kong. Yeah, this is um, a complicated question, right? Because a lot of first slash second gen Mm -hmm. kind of people say this, right? It's like, well, it's hard for me to describe or encapsulate my whole being, right? Mm-hmm. In, into just like a couple words. Because my dad's side of the family, my dad was born in Vancouver. My dad's father immigrated to Canada when he was 13. And my great grandfather, so my grandfather's father was already living in Canada when he was in his 30s and 40s as well as a pig farmer. But my mom's side of the family, my mom grew up in Hong Kong, but my mom immigrated to Vancouver when she was 16. But then, you know, my mom lived in Hong Kong during the era of of the English, right? So my mom had a British passport. She went to, you know, an English boarding school. So my influences are, they're very varied. And that's why I say I had a very bohemian mm-hmm. kind of nouveau Chinese. Not like the stereotypical Absolutely. Asian, no, like ab- tiger mom childhood. Mm-mm, no, no, not at all. Like my mom was not a tiger mom at all. Like she was just like, do what you want, like be creative. But I do remember, I don't know if I was in the double digits yet, like as a child, I must've been like, you know, six or seven or very young. Right. But I was really bright. So my mom, you know, she didn't speak to me like I was a like a baby. Just in passing, you know, she once told me, she was like, you know, Vanessa, like, you know, you're smart, you know, you're creative, like you you do all these things. My mom likes to knock me down pegs, right? Like that's mm-hmm. all of our parents. Mm-hmm. But my mom was like, you know, you have to always ask yourself, like, what you're doing, is it of any substance? Because she was like, if you have no Damn. substance then it's meaningless. And then, you know, that really stuck with me, right? Because I think there's a lot of people that fake it really well, you know, through life. And when my mom told me that, it wasn't really to spur me to like study harder or anything. It was just Mm -hmm. really something to provoke me to think, you know, what, if this say for fashion, if I'm really interested in fashion, like, do you have the substance to back it up? You know? okay, you wear cool clothes, but like, do you know anything else about it? So I remember I would just read a lot, you know, about fashion and I would watch a lot of like the little fashion TV that we would have um, on TV in Canada. And I mean, yeah, like that piece of advice has really stuck with me because I feel in my life today, everything that I, I try to do, whether it be creating an image or doing this podcast, I really want things to be of substance. Yeah. And with all of our previous guests, they all talk about their experience with being sort of like children of immigrants and feeling very different early on and noticing immediately that they were not like their peers. And even though your parents had a very like bohemian way of teaching you and your sister how to live and stuff, did you also have that same feeling of like, I'm, I'm different? I felt different on many different levels. I mean, like first I had a a very kind of, I always saw my mom as being someone who was very contemporary and glamorous, you know? So my mom, she went to fashion school through fashion school, you know, she developed really good taste. My mom's always had really good taste. So we had like, I would always go through my mom's like closet and there'd be like really cool clothes in there. And I'd be like, wow, no one's mom looks like my mom. Like no one's mom's wearing like black lipstick, right? Like this is in the nineties and like, does these cool things with her hair. So on that level, I understood that I was very different from my peers. You know, like no one took forever to get dressed in the morning. No Mm -hmm. one kind of devoured 
magazines, like in Vancouver, we don't have like Dwayne Reed's. We don't have those kind of stores. We have something called London Drugs. And I remember I would go into London Drugs and I would like go to the magazine section and I would take all of these fashion magazines and like read them page to page, you know. So that I knew very early on, I was very different, that I wasn't like the rest of the kids in school. I used those experiences to make myself better. Let's jump ahead a couple of years. Let's talk about how it went for you in college because you said okay. that early, very early on you were interested in fashion. Right. But somehow you ended up choosing, what is it, biomechanics? Biochemistry. Bi- yeah, all, it's all the same to me. Yeah. Biochemistry uh, and genetics. Yes, biochemistry and genetics. So when you were about to go to college, were you like, I know what I'm going to study. I'm going to become like a doctor. Like I'm abandoning like the fashion dreams that I had when I was younger. Never. So what's, what happened there? Never, never. I remember, so there were sewing classes, right? In high school and I took sewing classes. But again, like that was so boring, you know, because we had to like sew our name and like sew these like, I was like, when are we going to like be able to sew like a blazer or like, <laughs> you know, when can I like sew a gown, you know, because like all I had reference of was like what I saw on TV. And I'm like, like, I have this Belmont blazer that I would like yeah, to exactly. make. Where are the Swarovski crystals? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So fashion was always, always like I was always in my life. You know, I was doing like crazy stuff in high school. I was wearing like the weirdest, coolest outfits because fashion never left my life. But I was also interested like in science and math and whatnot. And I excelled in those classes. And, you know, to be honest with you, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Like I always had the dream of going to fashion school in New York, but it's so expensive. You know what I mean? Especially being Canadian, I'd be considered like an international student. And my passion for fashion, like just wasn't, (laughs) it wasn't strong enough to warrant like a 50 to $75,000 tuition. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, so I didn't, decide then to necessarily go into um, science. I actually got into sciences because again, you know, I got into university first year and I just did really bad because because oh I, I just like, I was more interested in like going to parties and doing my own thing than going to class. Right. I was mostly just sleeping. That's why I was. <laughs> right. Well, I guess, I mean, I didn't sleep that much. I just partied a lot in first yeah. year after high school, it's like, okay, because I come from a family of entrepreneurs, no one ever worked for anybody else. I was like, well, naturally, I'll just go into business because, um, oh, and also all through high school, I was an essay, so a sales associate. So first I worked at The Gap, then I worked at Aritzia. And this was like all through high school and actually some parts of university as well. So I'm like, you know, I'm really good at selling stuff. Yeah, like, Vanessa can sell anything. Yeah. Like I, anything. Like I can So I was like, you know, I'll just do business because I've always been interested by money, I guess, back then I was, and by the idea of business. So I was like, okay, great. Like I'll be, I'll go to the business department, the business faculty. And because, you know, I was partying too much and just not paying attention, I was like, oh, shoot, I'm missing a bunch of prerequisites. (laughs) So actually I can't go to business school. Like I could go if I decided to stay another year in like a liberal kind of program and taking all that stuff. And I was like, you know what? I don't even know like how this happened, but a lot of my friends were going into pre-med or they wanted to be dentists Mm -hmm. and it seemed kind of fun. So I know this is really, it's really strange. (laughs) I even like now that I'm like, recalling the story it doesn't make a whole lot of sense yeah (laughs) I'm listening I'm like fun yeah 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 but okay sure this is I think another reason was because I took a lot of to go into business the business faculty you had to take a bunch of math classes right Mm -hmm. so I I had like you know a good amount of math classes I had like all the early prereqs and I'm like well you know to go in the science department I'm only missing like you know a couple classes I just have to take like entry-level chemistry which I like totally could whiz through in the summer. And then the following year, I found myself in the faculty of science deciding further to further on to do biochemistry and genetics. Wow. So that's like the major that you graduated Mm -hmm. with. Did you like it? Were you like, this is going to make me want to become a doctor? Or you were just like, let me just get the fuck out of here. Finish off these credits. There There was no, I was like, this is not what I want to do. But then I 
in a way I felt trapped too. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, now I've got this like BSC. Like, what am I going to do? Like, I really, no one, first of all, for science grads, no one gets hired unless you have like a master's or a PhD, right? Oh, I didn't know that. It's very hard to get hired. Oh. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to have to like try to get my master's or like my PhD. But then I was just like, you know, my heart wasn't in it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can't imagine myself being locked up in a lab for the next 20, 30 years of my life. I'm yeah. like wearing the same thing every day. <laughs> You're like, it's mostly not fashionable enough for me. <laughs> yeah. It's just like wearing a white lab coat every day. So one thing I do have to say, what university taught me was really community, you know, like the friends that I made there because we literally like lived in the library together and like went to all these classes together, taught me what adult friendship is. Mm-hmm. And I agree. And it also taught me how to memorize things really well. I mean, <laughs> you always say that I've got like this crazy memory and it's yeah. because like, honestly, in university, I had to remember like hundreds of chemical formulas and, you know, parts of the body. So this Mm -hmm. is like, this is nothing. That's so funny that you just mentioned that because sometimes, because I'm always sitting in the room, but like on the other side of the room when Vanessa's doing interviews. And afterwards, I remember one time asking her, I was like, were you like reading off a script or something? Like, how did you just memorize all of these like dates and numbers? And she was like, no, like literally didn't even look at my notes. Yeah, I guess like I was going to ask you if you felt like looking back on your college or your university experience now, do you like regret choosing biochem? Like, no. Okay. So first of all, regret is one of like my most hated words. (laughs) I don't allow it into my life. You just got so triggered. Yeah, I'm so triggered (laughs) because I feel, okay, now I'm going to get kind of existential here. Regret I think, first of all, is a word that a lot of people and other interviews like where I've been, you know, where someone sits across, they ask me that too. Regret, it doesn't make any sense, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's like, it's posing the question of, okay, if you could go back in time, but it's like, actually, you can't go back in time. We can't live in the past, right? And I think that's why a lot of people get stuck in their lives because, they live in the past. They live in the glory of the past or they live in the pain in the past or they live in the future. Like these are two very imaginary places. So for me, if I were to say I regretted one moment in my life would be to take one kind of elemental part out of my journey. Like this conversation between you and I would not exist today if I didn't do all the things that led to this very like second of this conversation. So in a very long-winded way, no, I have no regrets at all. That's good to know because I feel like some listeners, they might feel like they're stuck in a situation, like whether it's like with their education or maybe with their job and they're just like, oh, it's like it's too late for me to really pursue my dreams. But I feel like you are always a firm believer that it's like never too late to start anything. Like literally, I always tell people, you can make a choice right now to change your life. You can say today... I'm no longer going to be a victim of my past. It doesn't mean, you know, the moment you say it that your past and the the pain that it vanishes. That's not how it works. But when you say that in that moment and you start, you know, kind of putting the work into moving forward, you are actually actualizing that. Mm-hmm. That's true. And I guess this is a good segue to start talking about your life after college, because even then you didn't start pursuing your dreams of fashion or anything creative. You went into selling pharmaceuticals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was like a little part. So Vanessa part, was a drug dealer. No, just kidding. Basically. <laughs> legalized drug dealer. A glorified dealer. drug dealer. Uh-huh. <laughs> So there was a little part after university. So like I said, right, I just had a BSc after university. I couldn't find a job. No one wanted to hire me because I, first of all, I didn't have enough lab experience. I did not obviously have a master's or a PhD. I just had like this lowly little BSc. And I was tutoring Asian students, English in Vancouver for Mm -hmm. a little bit. That was like one or two years. And like I was still working at Aritzi at the time, I think, and just like finding odd jobs, right? And I don't know. It's interesting because as much of a driven person I am now that I'm kind of like looking back, you know, at my university life and then like my life afterwards, I always knew I wanted to leave Vancouver, but I was never one of those people that just like picked everything up and just like left, you know? 
And looking back now, I was like, you know, I was kind of lazy. Right? <laughs> like I was just chilling, right? For like a year or two. I ended up, yeah, I ended up getting like a job working for this very small pharmaceutical company that like paid me nothing. Literally, they were paying me $6 an hour. But I was like, Whoa. yeah, this was like, it was really crazy. I mean, I only lasted there for like six months because I was like, this is not cool. And then I interviewed for one of the biggest, I mean, they're not, they're not a pharmaceutical company. They're like a tech company in, in Canada, one of the biggest ones called Stem Cell Technologies. I don't know if that's still the same name. They created technology to help people proliferate cells um, in the lab. They also had technologies to help you harvest um, stem cells. So it was, a, it was very, very like research-based. Mm -hmm. And I was hired as a sales essay, a sales associate, essentially. That was fun because everybody was young. Everybody was like cool and had like science degrees. It was kind of like being back in university in a way, right? Because I was around like young people, like the office was cool. Like I was motivated to do really well. I, I never got the feeling that, hey, this is what I should be doing. But that was like, you know, in my early, very, very early 20s where, I mean, I was making a lot of money. I was hanging around with people um, who I thought were my people and going shopping and like, you know, going to like nice restaurants, you know, like doing that whole like mm -hmm. cliche, my life is perfect kind of thing. I had like the perfect job. I had yeah. the perfect boyfriend. But after not even like a year into that job, I think I started exhibiting signs of some form of depression, right? Like it was by no means, I mean, I don't think it was clinical, but I was starting to become very like apathetic about work and about my own life. And I was starting to ask myself, you know, like, is this really what I want to do for the rest of my life? And I remember like very early on, I had an opportunity in sales, you know, like your territories are all kind of separated. They're divvied between people. Okay. And one of the territories that made a lot of money that had like a huge John Hopkins um, hospital in the territory, it was going to become vacated because one of the essays was going to move um, into another job or whatnot. I had the opportunity to interview for that. You know, and my manager at the time was like, you know, we think that you're one of like the top people that we would love to be in this territory. And like, a part of that meant like signing another contract, right? And possibly moving um, to Maryland and traveling a lot more. It was a really big commitment, right? And it scared me because I was like, is this really what I want to do for the rest of my life? And I remember like my manager, she was a woman and, you know, was she was young and had two kids and I looked up to her and she was like, you know, you could potentially be me one day. This could be your job. And instead of encouraging me, like that did the complete opposite. <laughs> you were like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> it completely scared me because then suddenly I was like, but this is not the life I want. I don't want to live in Vancouver forever. I don't want to work in an office forever. I don't want to wear a suit forever. Like I don't want to do this. And then from that moment, I was like, I need to do something very different with my life. And that's where the blog started. So that was the first thing that you tried to do outside of your job, mm -hmm. where it was like your sort of like side thing. Yeah. What made you want to start a blog? Like, did you see any other blogs? That were you know, what's really interesting. I was like, so not tech savvy. I didn't even know what a blog was, right? <laughs> I don't even know how I started chancing upon it. But I think one of my friends who's not, like, not even interested in fashion was like some guy that I met, a friend that I met who worked in the IT department. He was like, you know, have you ever heard of a blog? I was like, what's a blog? You know, <laughs> like, what is that? And this is like very early on, you know, when the blog, like the fashion blogosphere was just starting yeah. and it was a very small community. I mean, now it's like this huge thing, yeah. right? For those of you who don't know Vanessa's like past, she's one of the like very first big fashion bloggers that came about because, um, well, if you listen to her conversation with Ami, subtle plug that they were one of the, like, they were two of the first fashion bloggers that kind of made fashion blogging a thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So continue. Okay. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thanks for the plug. Um, so I, my friend was like, take a look at these. And then the moment I saw these blogs of these girls of like Ami, of like Rumi on Fashion Toast and Carla from Dark Carla's Closet. I love um, I know, right? Like all of these and like Tommy Taunt, that's another, Susie, yeah, Tommy another guest. Um, and then shout Susie. out to Tommy. <laughs> 
when I found these, I was like, oh my gosh, like these people are just taking photos on their own and they're wearing their own clothes, but they're like super, super fashionable. I'm like, this is what I want to do. Then I remember like very business-like went over to my friend, like the same friend from the IT department. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to start a blog. <laughs> so then I thought forever, okay, like I got I to gotta find a name. And I like studied all the other blogs. I'm like, okay, why are they successful? Okay, they like post every single day. You know, um, they like to write about this. I got to like do this and this. You're doing analysis. Yeah. So this is I was, really taking your science background to use. Yeah. So I was taking a very kind of like analytical approach to it. But I also understood I'm like, look, like, there's so many talented people on this universe, but without the proper vehicle, you can't get it to the masses, right? That's why like, you know, that's why artists have agents. So the artist just has to make the art. But for me back then, I didn't have an agent. I didn't have anyone. It was just me and my friend from IT being like, <laughs> how are we going to create like the blog of the future? <laughs> You guys in like a pharmaceutical company trying yeah. to start a fashion blog? <laughs> Very much. I remember I bought like my first MacBook. Like before that, I was like working on a PC, found the name, bought the site from like GoDaddy.com. And I had my boyfriend at the time take photos of me. It just started from there. And like, you know, I like recall the story to you before. Very quickly, it took off like right away. But that was not, I mean, so many people are like, oh yeah, I just like, you know, did this. And then like all of this amazing stuff happened, blah, blah, blah. And I feel like when we don't credit ourselves for the work that we do, we make something that looks effortless, mm -hmm. look like there was no work involved, right? Yes. But there was so much work that led to the release of like the blog. Like I had like all of these outfits, you know, like I had a full-time job, yeah. you know, I like no, after work, so yeah. I had to like go out after work and then take these photos. Sometimes I had to take it on a tripod if someone couldn't take it for me. I had to teach myself how to use Photoshop. I had to teach myself how to use like a professional camera. I You have to keep in mind, I never took any classes. I had no idea how to do any of this. I didn't know how to code. Mm -hmm. I taught all of this, you know, to myself. It's a lot of work. And honestly, I don't even know what drove me then. You know, now that I like look back at all my posts and, you know, of course, outside of work, outside of blogging, you know, like I had a life, you know, mm -hmm. I had friends, I had to go to the gym, I had to do all these things. And I just remember that time I was, I don't know what I was fueled by. I think what it was, was that like, oh my God, this is what I should be doing with my life. And I'm so passionate about this. Like, I don't care where it goes. Like, I'm willing to throw myself into this. So I threw yes. so much of myself into it and was like, didn't care about sleep, didn't care about anything. I was very myopic. That's true. And referencing back to Philip Lim's episode, how naivete can serve you because you just don't know much about like this whole world and what can happen, what it would look like if you failed, what if everyone is making fun of your photos like behind the, the computer. So it was just like, you didn't know much about the industry, but you put all your work into it. And I mean, it turned into something. And I think it's interesting that you brought up failure because I've never been afraid of failure. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe on some level I was like, definitely I was afraid of failing out of biochemistry. Like that's something. <laughs> Actual I, like getting an <laughs> like that. My parents paid a lot for that education and I would have been very you. scared yes. if I failed out of like that degree. When I started my blog, there was no fear at all. There was no like, oh my gosh, are people going to, maybe there was a little bit of that, like, are people going to like this? But it wasn't fear, mm -hmm. you know? I was never like, oh my God, this is ever going to become a thing. Is this, this and that? I just knew that it was going to succeed in some weird part of me. I just knew like, this is my ticket out of Vancouver. And when it started taking off, like what happened? Did your life change? Were you like all of a sudden like jet setting across the world? Okay. Like first of all, for reference, like 10 years ago, like 10 plus years ago, when we were all starting to blog, like no one, no one cared, you know, like mm -hmm. you would be lucky if someone loaned you clothes. Like there was no like, oh, sponsoring this. Like I remember, although I was, you know, I had a good job and whatnot, like there wasn't a lot of cool clothes to buy in Vancouver. So I'd always like buy all of my own outfits. Like I would always thrift. I had to, I mean, nobody was paying me. 
But no, I did not like jet set and like swim in cash mm-hmm. after that. It was tough. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't like that at all. When were you able to take blogging to kind of become your full time thing? Again, this is like a complicated answers that I'm going to give you because so I was continuing to blog all through working at this place called Stem Cell Technologies where I was, you know, going to work and selling scientific tools during <laughs> the day and like leaving at night to go blog. I think I did that for another like almost another year, another like six, eight months. Yeah. Then I was like, you know, I just I have to leave, you know, at that point, I'd saved enough money because I knew I was going to go, you know, somewhere. I think in that that same year, I went to my first New York Fashion Week. And that was actually when I first met Ami in person and like so many other girls who I had um, only seen online. And that was such a like a beautiful moment, you know, and it's not like now, right? Like I wasn't invited to any shows. I mean, no one cared, right? They were just like, like, who is this? (laughs) Yeah. Like I only ever went to things that were kind of more like blogger focused, right? But when I was in New York, I was like, this is like where I want to be. You know, I'd always, I've always dreamed of living in New York and I'm like, this is where I want to live. I get back to Vancouver and I'm like, look, I'm going to quit my job very quickly. I was like, you know, I got to leave. Interestingly, right around that time, one of my friends had just graduated from Parsons, um, someone else I met in Vancouver and he moved to China. And yes. now we're on to the next chapter. Yeah, of now your life. I mean, how many chapters in my life have there been? We're already running out of time. And I we know. didn't even get through like barely got through college. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did you decide to move to China? Well, again, like I'm not a thinker, right? I'm not like, oh, let me mull over this. I'm very much like, okay, this is my choice. I'm gonna do it. So my friend was I just moved. Someone who I really looked up to, you know, like he was one of the weirdest people I'd ever met in my life. Like he was an artist. He did so many things. And he was like, you should just come and visit me in Beijing. It's like really messed up here, but like in the coolest way possible. And just for reference, my family's from Hong Kong. So I'd never been to the mainland before. And around that time, what was it like 2011? I might be mixing up the dates, but um, I mean, the years But right around that time, Beijing was just starting to open. So it was like a really cool place. There were like so many ABCs and CBCs going back to the mainland for the very first time in their life. Mm -hmm. So my friend was like, just come. And I was like, you know what? I don't know why, but I really want to do this. So I quit my job. Two weeks later, I'm out of Vancouver and I'm living in China. But when you got there, I feel like it was not exactly what you had expected. Oh, no, not at all. Like I thought, again, you know, like this whole season being dedicated to Asian excellence and trying to like reconcile identity and like, you know, how I grew up and whatnot. I went to China thinking like, oh my gosh, I'm going to step on that soil and I'm going to hear the angels and they're going to be like, welcome home, Vanessa. But it was not that. I remember like the moment I got there, I like called my sister on my phone and I was like, I've just made the biggest mistake of my life. Like, I don't know why I'm here. I'm like on this freeway, like in, you know, Beijing, the pollution's very bad. So I'm like, yeah, I can't even see the cars in front of me. And I'm like, like, I can't even see the yeah, angels. And there's like, there's like a Lambo to my left and there's like some guy on literally a horse and carriage to my right <laughs> on like one of the biggest highways, right? Yeah, in Beijing. Like, where am I? Where? And, and then I was living on my friend's couch. So no, again, like just to reiterate, I was not swimming in money. <laughs> there right? was no jetting. There was, there was no, no setting. <laughs> jet setting. You know, I barely could pay for my ticket, like, because I was saving this money to survive. So I like couch surfed for six months in Beijing on my friend Peter's couch. Me and his dog, we shared the same bed in this like tiny 600 square foot apartment that him and his girlfriend at the time were living in. But that was kind of like, for me, I always tell people like when they're like, what, like, what were some big shifts or pivotal moments in your life? Moving to China as much as hard as it was for me in the very beginning was that big shift for me. Like when I got to China, cause you know, when you grow up in like the West, like people in the West have it so good. You can drink your tap water, you know, like you can trust the food that you're buying, um, at the supermarket. China, you know, you move to China and everything goes out the door, right? Like I remember moving there and just thinking like, this place is so wild. 
you know, like apartment buildings literally go up overnight, like the Mm -hmm. most random things that you see happen. And like a whole street block, right, can have trees one day and the next day you you leave your apartment and they're gone. (laughs) And then three days later, they've planted new types of trees. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, you you feel like you're living in like bizarro land in a weird way. So here I am plopped into the city. I know one other person. I don't speak Mandarin because in Hong Kong, we speak Cantonese. I just like experienced loneliness for yes. the very first time in my life. I remember you said that was the first time you experienced true loneliness. Right. Like you thought right. you knew what loneliness was before, but not until you moved to a completely opposite side of the world by yourself. Right, right, right. And it's not to be like, oh, boohoo, like I was lonely. I, I've never been the person to like want a lot of friends, mm-hmm. you know, like I have wonderful people in my life who I cherish, but I'm not, I don't need the validation of other people because I know who I am. But I remember I was like in, so finally after six months, I move out of like Peter's apartment because he's, his girlfriend at the time was probably like, she needs to get out of here. <laughs> like, you know, all it's like three of us in this yeah, tiny apartment. And the dog. <laughs> and the dog. So then I move actually next door to another like because we lived in a in a community, it was Pingua in Beijing at the time, and I think it's still called that. And I move into this apartment. And I remember I was like sitting on my bed, and as the sun was setting, and I just like looked over endless horizon of high rises in Beijing. You know, it's it's desolate, it's post-apocalyptic, you know, the red sun is setting in this super heavily polluted sky. And I just was like, wow, this is what loneliness truly means. And it was almost like a a rite of passage to adulthood. I was like, this is what life is. You know, like, what do you really want to make of it? It's not about like going to the club and like, you know, making a ton of money. Like in that moment, you know, it reminded me of that question. I heard my mom's voice being like, well, what are you made of? What's your substance? And Up until that moment, I was like, I've been living a life of no substance because I was living a life of what I thought other people wanted for me, Mm -hmm. like what I thought I wanted for myself. China changed for me after that, you know, it became the place where my creativity really was able, I felt like I was back in art class, you know, you know, like when you're a child and you have the freedom to do anything Mm -hmm. like in China, very contrary to what a lot of people think, you know, they think like, oh, well, you can't access Facebook and and, like, as if Facebook and Instagram are like, (laughs) you know, like these great portals to existence. (laughs) It's, It's really not right. But like, when I was young, and I was dancing, I was painting, I was making movies, I was doing all sorts of stuff, I felt free. Mm -hmm. I felt like I could do anything I wanted to do, that my creativity had so many outlets. And then, you know, the older you get, those doorways get smaller and Mm -hmm. smaller and smaller. And then I just, I didn't realize it then, but I felt choked. You know, I felt like creatively stagnant. And then in China, suddenly, you know, I have friends who are doing pop-up art galleries that get broken up by literally the culture police, you know, because they're doing intense, very like intensely political work. You know, Mm -hmm. I have friends that work for Weiwei, Ai Weiwei. And I have friends who work for Vogue China. You know, I have friends who are doing all sorts of like really cool things. And I felt free in China for the first time, I think, in my life. Yeah. So being in this place where you thought was like the biggest mistake of your life, where it's like the saddest you've ever been, it actually propelled you forward helped your career along. How long did you stay there for? I was there for three years. I ended up staying longer because I met my boyfriend at the time and he was French and he'd been there for like eight years. We stayed there together for another two years. But, you know, near the end of it, I was like, you know, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. And it's, it's, I mean, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's so tough to live in Beijing, like the pollution. It's weird. It's like a million times harder and easier simultaneously. And after you left China, you kind of started another sort of re like reincarnation of yeah, yourself yeah, yeah. because you started a shop. Yeah, I started a shop and it was called THB Shop after my blog, The O Pursuit. I was hired as a consultant for a brand to help them buy, like be a buyer. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. They wanted to kind of be like a like a multi-branded, but not like a Western branded, like no label kind of online store. I knew the girl who was starting it and I was in China and, you know, obviously everything comes from China more or less. 
especially like that kind of clothing that they were looking for. You know, she was like, hey, do you want to consult for us? You know, there's this thing called Taobao, which I had been using. So like for the non-users of Taobao, if you don't know Taobao, everyone, first of all, everyone in China uses Taobao. You can buy cars, you can buy diapers, you can buy food. And I became really good at using it, even though I couldn't read or write Chinese very well. So she was like, yeah, why don't you like help us source clothing? And so that's what I started doing. And I mean, like that consulting job, it ended, it didn't really, it didn't work out. But what it gave me were the tools to be like, hey, actually, why don't I just do this for myself? Again, you know, it's like one of those moments, you know, where like, cause I was like, wait, why don't I just become like the head buyer? They're mm-hmm. like, well, in order for you to do that, you like need to like prove yourself. Like you need to like have a degree, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yo, I don't have time for that. Like it's the same with bio. Like that's why I don't think I could have stayed in sciences, you know, to be like, oh, 20 years to get my PhD. I'm like, no, I don't want to take the traditional route. Yeah. So I'm like, well, instead of me like proving to you after three years that like I'm worthy to have this position, I'm just going to start my own thing. I got back to Vancouver and I started THP shop and that was kind of like another really big moment in my life because I actually went back to Vancouver because my boyfriend and I, we broke up the first time and I was just like heartbroken. You know, I was like a hot mess. I couldn't eat. I was like, my life is over <laughs> like this and this because he was like this great love of my life. Oddly enough, the same IT guy that helped me start my blog back yeah. in the day, he was going through a breakup as well. Oh. So we were both like miserable at the same time. <laughs> I have to thank Deepak Chopra for this if I ever meet him in in real life. But my friend was like, have you ever heard? And this just shows you like how far I've come on my spiritual journey because he was like, have you heard of someone called Deepak Chopra? I was like, who's Deepak Chopra? <laughs> he was like, no, just listen to this. And he gave me this thing because Deepak Chopra has this recorded memo or this thing of like the ABCs according to Deepak Chopra, every letter represented some sort of, you know, like some piece of advice. Mm-hmm. I listened to that every day, like nonstop. And then I started listening to Tony Robbins as well, who's like a a huge motivational speaker and someone who changes lives. And I was like, wait, like I need to take control of my life. I need to use my like pain right now and turn it into something positive. Mm -hmm. And also like my mom was sick of me like crying (laughs) around the house. She was like, Vanessa, you just got to stop complaining. Yeah, She's like, you got to get your life together you know, you, you've got so much potential. So I'm like, okay, fine. You know, Deepak <laughs> Chopra, Tony Robbins, my mom's nagging at me. <laughs> I'm going to start this blog. I mean, sorry, this, this store, the same amount of energy that I put into starting my blog. It was like, again, that, that kind of renaissance. I felt this insurgence of energy of like infinite potentiality that rose in me. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do now. And that's all I did. I like did everything from the very beginning. I was the model. I was like the customer service. I was your packer. I remember like, as we started to become very successful, like I remember packing so many orders. Oh yeah. Like right around like Christmas time, you know, like that's when you, as an online store, you do a lot of business around then. Right. Also because of like Black Friday and whatnot. And around that time, I remember I had like hundreds of orders and I didn't have anybody to help me. You know, it was just me. And I remember like, I asked my sister to come over. I was like, yeah, you know, I just got to pack a few things. You're like, it's so fun. <laughs> and then I had like, you know, like the stickers for the shipping. My sister's like, this looks literally like over a hundred packing slips. Like, <laughs> and so we cleared up my mom's living room. My mom like lives in an apartment and we made boxes. We packed everything and like the packaging and like everything was like perfect. Like to the point that my hands were so raw that I thought they were going to start bleeding. Like that was how dedicated I was and I was willing to do everything. There wasn't like, you know, oh, like I'm going to delegate. Well, I was bossy because I like got my sister to come (laughs) over, but I was still like, I was doing that and it was like such an amazing moment time in my life. Like I was so tired. I was like waking up at like five in the morning, going to sleep at 11. Cause you know, I was trying to get back to everybody. Cause I was like, you know, THP shop, we've got the best customer service. Like we'll I'm respond. I'm here 24 seven. Yeah, exactly. Anytime. Exactly. <laughs> so like I would go to bed responding to customer messages in the morning and it just started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. 
Wow, because this was also back when not a lot of bloggers were doing their own line. So you were, again, kind of just figuring out yeah. everything on your own, just sort of like with your blog. Yeah, yeah. So I do, you know, I do want to give credit to like, you know, the other OGs, like Rumi had a store very early on, but she was selling vintage, right? She oh, was selling. I remember now. Mm-hmm, yeah. So a lot of girls had stores on eBay and whatnot. Oh, yeah. I also, I mean, I don't want to go back that far. But like when I, I was also selling vintage back in the day when I had my blog, but this was like, these were new products. They were, you know, sourced from China. They were styled. Like I created lookbooks, like that whole business model. No one was doing it at the time. I mean, Kiara was was always making her own product, but she had like a whole team behind her. Like my team was literally like me and sometimes (laughs) my sister when I could like cajole her to, to come along and do the work with me. Wow, that's really crazy. I didn't really know like the background about THP Shop because I I do know that it was very successful because I remember seeing those cuffs. Mm-hmm. Everyone was wearing them, but I had no idea that you were like on the floor in your mom's apartment packing mm-hmm. and shipping all of them with Victoria. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was that was me for a little bit and then it and then it started taking off some more and then I started going back to China and I was like actually I want to make Okay, so then you know, we were selling basically stuff that was pre-made already. And while I was in China one year, I had a faux fur coat made, right? Like this really beautiful emerald green coat. And it was just for myself because I've always wanted one because I never could find like a really beautiful faux fur that was like high end, that had like a silk lining that was like warm enough during the winter. A bunch of my friends, you know, were like, like my fashion friends were like, where'd you get this coat from? I'm like, well, I made it in China. And that's when I had the idea to start my faux fur line under the THP name. And, you know, it got really, really big. We sold at Nordstrom's, you know, a lot of like other stores online. Lady Gaga wore the coat. Yeah, I was going to say like casually Lady Gaga, Mm -hmm. just like wore your jacket, like whatever. It's not a big deal. We don't need to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, that was that was really cool. I remember the background of this is I was in Paris for Paris Fashion Week one season And this just, this is an example, okay, for those of you who get invited to things and like don't show up, like why you maybe should show up sometimes, (laughs) because I'm definitely like a ghoster when it comes to things, but I'm so glad, you know, I went to this thing. So my friend invited me to a showroom and, you know, she was like, there's this young new designer, his name's Brandon Maxwell, like he's doing really cool stuff. Like he's dressed, he used to be Gaga's stylist. I show up, I meet Brandon, the clothes are beautiful. And he's like such a nice person. And then my friend, you know, who I love, she was like, oh, you know, like Vanessa, she's got like a faux fur line. And then Brandon's like, oh, can you show me? And so like, I pull up this lookbook and the lookbook's like all of me. Cause I, again, <laughs> like I could not afford, you know, a model. I was the model and the stylist and everything. And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry. Like, this is me. This is the lookbook. He was like, oh, these are really cool. And he was like, how fast can you get one? to LA. He was like, I think Gaga will like it. And you're like, Gaga as in lady? (laughs) Yeah. I was like, as in lady Gaga. And it's interesting because her sister was also in the room at the same time. And they were like, yeah, like you should send this to LA. Literally within 48 hours, I see Gaga. She's wearing like a bubble pink faux fur coat and like one of the matching stoles Mm -hmm. that we made. It was like a full pink look. She's like coming out of like the Greenwich hotel or some like some hotel, like a super big paparazzi moment. My messages in the morning were popping off. I like all of these friends that were like, bitch, did you see like your coats on like Lady Gaga? Like I had no idea. Because you like, didn't know when she was going to wear I it. I didn't know. Because, you know, we send like I've sent coats to Beyonce. I've sent like coats to like Solange's team, like to so many celebrities who, you know, like when you're a designer, you send things to people and especially with stylists, right? They yeah. like literally have a, a room full of options. and. Even like, you know, I've had like confirmations on things from really big celebrities and they don't end up wearing it. You know, like I tune into like shows. I'm like, oh, she's going to wear it today. And they don't. Right. And it's because um, they're just last minute changes. So I, I never thought that anything would happen. You know, I actually kind of forgot about it. And then like when I saw my friend sending me, I was like, oh, my gosh, like this is so crazy. I can't even like comprehend that, like just making something and then seeing it on Lady Gaga, like two days later. And this was like Lady Gaga in the height, height, height of her like fame, like of of her being just newly like a, um, anointed the queen of pop, right? Mm-hmm. Like this was, 
huge, like, I don't know, like the Gaga pandemonium was at the, the height at yeah. this moment. Yeah. I remember, I just saw that picture recently and I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you kind of shifted with THP Shop. You kind yeah. of changed a little bit what mm-hmm. you were selling. Tell us why that happened. So with THP Shop, you know, I was, you know, I was blogging at simultaneously while I had this online store and like, I remember I was starting to kind of, again, ask myself, like, what am I doing? Is this really what I want to do? And I was starting to meditate more. And I was starting to really like get into my yoga and my spiritual practice because work was so demanding. There was no outlet for me. So I started reading a lot of self-help books, right? Because again, all through my life, I'm like, I see a problem. I'm going to fix it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to wait for someone to be like, oh, like, have you read this book? I'm like, I always want to take the prerogative or I always want to take the initiative to go ahead and better myself. So around this time, I'm like, okay, I'm stressed. I'm again starting to slip into not a depression, but starting to 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 feel this like apathy come into my work. So then I start reading a lot of self-help books like Eckhart Tolle, Michael Singer, a lot of like Buddhist books like Thich Nhat Hanh, the Dalai Lama, and just really trying to broaden, you know, my worldview, my global view of life. And right around this time, um, I watched this Netflix documentary called The True Cost, a documentary by Livia Firth who's the founder of Eco EcoAge. And the documentary basically documented the cost of fashion, the human cost of fashion, specifically in India, of women, you know, of underprivileged people. I remember it was like another one of those crazy moments. I was in Rome. I was like on this like crazy trip with Fendi. Like everything was like super decked out. This was when, you know, Carl was still with us. And had staged like this crazy fashion show. Like you can't think of, of something more opposite of what that documentary showed me. And I just thought to myself, like, Oh my God, I can't work in fashion anymore. Like, how can I sleep at night knowing that the things that go into making a garment are so dark, you know, like how I can't, I can't do this anymore. And like for me, I'm very zero or a hundred. So in that moment, I started planning how I was going to exit. So with THP shop, I'm like, look, we're going to sell off all these coats. I'm not going to, I'm not going to design a new collection. But then I still, you know, I still need to make money. So I was like, well, instead of making um, faux furs, because you know, my issue with faux furs was that yes, we're not hurting animals, but a lot of faux furs are almost, I would say a hundred percent of faux furs are made with synthetic, Mm -hmm. you know, plastic based materials. And guess what? When you're done with it, and say you, you know, need to throw it away, it's going to be dumped like in a dump yard somewhere. Yeah, well, it just goes straight to the landfill. It goes to the landfill. And guess what the plastics are going to do? Guess what the colors are going to do? They're going to be leached into the soil, right? All of those nasty things go into the soil. Then they go into the waterway. Then they start poisoning the people. And oftentimes, right, where we dump the excess of clothing are in developing countries, mm-hmm. in Brazil, in India, in China. I mean, like, you know, when you start going down the list, you're like, oh God, that's like really scary, yeah. right? The repercussions of just wanting to look cute. Mm-hmm. So then from there, I was like, okay, if I sell anything, it has to be biodegradable, you know, like it has to be uh, like one of those items that's timeless and seasonless. So then I remember I was on a trip in Morocco and I was like, well, you know, these um, tote bags are really cool, right? Like yeah. these, these are woven, they're done by women in the villages. So why don't I just do this? And right around that time, you know, like the, that whole like French girl aesthetic, like Jane Birkin aesthetic Mm -hmm. was really hot. So I'm like, this is the perfect moment to do this. So I did that as well. But then ultimately, you know, I just was like, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, like my heart's not in it because at the end of the day, I'm still making something. There's still a lot of packaging involved, you know, to get this from me to the customer. I'm still making a footprint on this earth. And so I was like, you know, I'm just not going to do this anymore. And again, we, you know, we, we put it's THP shop has been on hold since then. Yeah. This was like sort of in the beginning of 2018, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is also around the time when you started formulating ideas about a little podcast. I know we may or may not be on right now. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So 
So after THB shop ended, I, a lot of like things started again. You know, I signed with a new agency here in New York, um, with a society. I got new agents. I started thinking, well, you know, now that I don't have THB shop, I'm going to really have to, you know, up all of my influencer work. So then I started doing a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of influencer work. And it was on one of these jobs. But you know, like the the idea of wanting to do more, of wanting more for my life, of wanting to give back more, like that desire always haunted me. You know, it never left. Like even in all those bright moments in my life, like whether I be on a cover of a magazine or I land in like a huge global campaign or like all of these big monumental moments in your life, you know, where you're like, oh, I've made it. That question or like, again, like my mom is just like, well, what substance are you bringing? Mm -hmm. What are you really bringing to the table? That really haunted me. And also like this, this desire, this growing desire of mine to give back, right? Like, because, you know, working, being an influencer, like the work, obviously it's very narcissistic. It's like me, 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 like selfies, like take a photo of me. Like when I look through my phone, it's just photos <laughs> of me. It's just like thousands of, I literally yeah. have like two terabytes of photos of myself. You know what I mean? <laughs> I understand the irony, but I'm like, so that, that want of being, you know, a lighthouse for other people. Cause that's how I am in my personal life. You know, like, you know, with you, I, I feel like I'm, you know, an older sister to you. Like if you ever need anything, I'm always here for mm-hmm. you. And like with all of my other friends and all of my other, and everyone's always like, you know, like you're such like, you should be a motivational speaker. You know, I've got so much experience and blah, blah, blah. And the two years leading up to the launch of this pod, or maybe even five years, like I've been listening to podcasts forever. You know, I love podcasts. They've taught me so much. I really found, you know, my spiritual community online first before I met, you know, these people in person. So podcasts always had a huge part of my life. I listened to maybe like three, four podcasts a day, all sorts of topics, right? I never was like, there wasn't like, okay, I need to start a podcast, but There was a moment when I was at work, when Mm -hmm. I was at an event, this was an especially grueling New York fashion week. I was doing a lot of things. I was exhausted. I wasn't living in New York yet. And I ended up going to this party um, that was paid to be at to promote the launch of this new accessory. I just felt like it was, it was so, you know, the excess that I was surrounded by. And I mean, like, you know, you're surrounded by it always in fashion, but like this particular night, it was particularly extravagant to the point that it almost felt like it was snubbing its nose to what was really going on in our world. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like this is like in the midst of like the refugee crisis and like, I mean, the ongoing refugee, like so much stuff I think in the news was happening at that time too. So like I was feeling very emotional and open at that time. I remember I was treated, I, I wasn't treated very well in my opinion that night. You know, I felt like I was a piece of meat. I felt, I don't know, like I just, I remember I I just thought to myself, like, what am I doing here? Like, was this really worth the paycheck to align myself with this brand, to do these things? And I almost cried actually leaving that evening. And, you know, I'm not like, you know, I'm not like a a weepy person at all, Mm -hmm. but I was just really overwhelmed. And um, I remember I went back to my hotel room that night and I was like in this like awesome, fabulous outfit, hair and makeup done. You know, my friend Henry shows up. He was like, what's going on? And I'm like, I've just been like sobbing for two hours. I was so angry at myself. I was like, why was I there? You know, like never again will I compromise myself like that, you know, for money. Like, mm-hmm. who am I? Like, what am I really doing with my life? Is this what I want to do for the next like 10, 20, 30 years of my life? Have surface conversations mm-hmm. and pretend I like something, pretend to, you know, do something that I don't want to do. And I remember I journaled that night because journaling has been, you know, a great tool in my life. I wrote, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start a podcast. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I have no idea how they're done, (laughs) but I'm going to start a podcast because I know I'll be good at it. I know this is a way that I will have zero footprint, a product that I'm going to give to people. It's not clothing. It's not, you know, like some hair product. It's something that I honestly and with all my heart will be like, you know what? 
this is okay. This product I'm fine with doing because this is actually contributing to somebody's life. You know, I'm going to be able to have conversations. Like we say, like uh, during the intro, like conversations that really move you. Right. And I'm not interested in surface bullshit anymore. I'm at like at that point in my life where I'm like, the planet needs us right now. We need to wake the fuck up. Pardon the language again, because we can't just float through life and just look fabulous all the time. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I'm all about fabulosity. <laughs> but again, like that goes back to what my mom like says, but what's your substance? In that journal, I wrote, okay, so these are the guests, my dream guests. Philip Lim was the very first guest. I didn't know him, but I, we had, you know, we had mutual friends. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to make this happen, but Philip Lim is going to be my friend. Shout you out know? to <laughs> Like, shout out to Philip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why, you know, I say during the first episode, I'm like, I could have been a stalker. I mean, I wasn't a stalker, but I was like one of his hugest fans, yeah. right? I'm like, I'm going to have all of these people on this podcast and I'm going to make it happen. And about Here a, we are. And yeah, and, and <laughs> again, you know, like about a year later, I met Philip on that crazy trip in India and he mm-hmm. agreed to be my very first guest. And yeah. now I, you know, I get to call Philip a friend, you know, someone who I've admired for so long. Yeah. And here we are sitting recording Vanessa Wants to Know. Yeah. I remember you going to record that first episode at Philip's um, beautiful mm-hmm. apartment. I was also there. (laughs) I was in the back. Mm -hmm. That was like one of, I think I had just met you then. Like we didn't know each other for very long. No, we've only known each other. It's been like our anniversary is up around. Our anniversary is New York Fashion Week. Yes, it is. Yeah. And I remember Vanessa's like, oh, we're going to go to Philip's apartment to record a podcast. I was like, I'm going into his personal (laughs) apartment. I'm like, what do you mean? (laughs) And I did something so embarrassing. I like put my stuff down on like this bench that I thought was a bench. Yeah, it was, it was like, it was, <laughs> it was like these Donald Judd chairs that were very expensive. Yeah, I was like, I thought this was a wooden bench. <laughs> and then me and Vanessa recently went to like this art trip upstate and then Donald Judd's like work was in the museum. And I was like, I can't be here right now. I need to leave. <laughs> like triggering you. <laughs> this is so traumatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's round off this conversation by talking about why you thought it was so important to dedicate the season to Asian X. Okay, so when I wrote my list out, right, almost everybody on the list was Asian. And it wasn't something, you know, I did consciously. And I remember, like, you know, in my intro to this whole series, I was really reticent to call this Asian excellence, you know? And this was just right around the time that Crazy Rich Asians came out, right? And I was like, you know, is it too gimmicky? Is it too, like, am I going to be pegged just as like an Asian podcaster? (laughs) Even though that is what I am, you know, I am Asian and I do do podcasts, but I also do a whole, you know, shit ton of other stuff. But then that really forced me to like look at kind of a darker side, you know, of my history to be like, well, why are you so embarrassed to be Chinese? Mm-hmm. Why are you so embarrassed to embrace who you are? Because, you know, I, all my friends growing up, they were white. So I wasn't surrounded, you know, yeah. by a super Asian community. So I became that token, you know, Asian that spoke really good English, mm-hmm. right? In university, in high school and beyond. And, you know, everyone was always like, well, you're not like the rest of them. You know, you're one of us. Like I've literally had people tell me that. They were like, you know, you're not like a regular Chinese person. So I was like proud for so long to be like, yeah, I speak fluent English. You know, like I look like everybody. I do like white people things. Like, you know, I hide all the embarrassing parts of my Asian heritage, this and this and this. And with the whole crazy rich Asians phenomenon and everything that followed afterwards, you know, like, I don't know what was going on like at that time, but I was just like, you know, and like also in the background of Me Too and Black Lives Matter, I'm like, you know, fuck this. Like I'm going in. Like if I am going to do this, I have to really do things honestly, right? And like one of my mantras or one of the things I always tell myself in my life is like, if I'm not going to do it honestly, I'm not going to do it at all because I'm going to be lying. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I don't want to lie at all. Like, that's just not what I want. That's not what I'm about. Like, yeah. I've done that for so much of my 20s. Like, in my 30s, I'm all about just being brutally honest with myself. And with Asian excellence, I looked at my list and I was like, you know what? 
I'm going to dedicate this to my community. You know, my community that has given so much to me. Like, this is like not only to the people on the show, but like to my ancestors, to my grandparents, like, you know, to my parents. So, you know, I felt like this is going to be my vehicle to champion our stories. No, you're totally right. And from the feedback you've been getting on the podcast, just from those personal messages people have been sending you, I think these conversations have really moved people. I think also validated a lot of the feelings that people who have always just felt any sort of otherness, it it made them feel seen. And I think that's so important, especially in this time period like in this particular climate so again like to wrap things up this particular season has just given me so much joy and to see like young people like yourself young POCs out there that are really embracing who they are I mean it's inspiring me as well right to really live in every single corner and and space of of who I am. And that means being, you know, like a Chinese Canadian woman. Yes. Well, this has been really fun, especially for me. Let's finish this conversation up because I think it's been five hours. Yes. (laughs) All right. Bye. Thanks, Amy. Bye. All right. So that was my conversation with Amy. I hope all of you really enjoyed that. I hope some of that really stuck. It was very cathartic to talk about my life with Amy. It's funny when you work in the digital space, you're just so, you know, you're just moving forward constantly. You're never really as present as you'd like. And while sitting down with Amy and Amy kind of bringing up all of these things in my life, I was like, wow, like a lot of stuff has gone down. And it was kind of like being on a therapist chair. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoyed it because this is the season finale. I won't be in your ears for a little bit. And I just want to say thank you. You know, thank you so much for giving me and my show your attention because, you know, there's so many things out there that are trying to grab our eyes and our ears. And the fact that, you know, that you've set time aside like an hour plus of your day to listen to these conversations, it means the world to me. And if you haven't already, in order to get this podcast out more, make sure to rate us five out of five on iTunes and to leave us a comment in the review section. And if you want to stay on top of what's going on, if Vanessa wants to know and what we're, you know, setting up for season two, make sure you follow us on Instagram at Vanessa wants to know and, you know, give us a holler there. All right. So that's it for season one. Really looking forward to season two and all those comments and DMs coming my way. You all mean the world to me. Thank you so much.